the Jogcast. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. With Fiona Healy, Monique Hansen, Ian McDonald, Jake Morgan, Tom Scrag, Benjamin Shaw, and Charlie Walker. The Jogcast, May 2017, Extra Edition. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Charlie, and joining me in the studio are Fiona. Hi Charlie. Ben. Hello. And Jake. Hello. In the show this time, Ian answers your astronomical questions, and we interview Dr. Elisabetta Valianti about Herschel Atlas. But first, before all of that, Tom talks to Josh Hayes and James Stringer in this month's Job Bite. Okay, we've had a question from a number of our listeners about FRBs, or fast radio bursts, and why don't we observe them in the optical wavelengths? Well, we're lucky today, we have two researchers from the University of Manchester with us, to talk about just that question. So welcome to uh, Josh Hayes and James Stringer. Josh, do you want to give us a couple of sentences about yourself and what you're doing? Yeah, so um, my name's Josh Hayes, as Tom has pointed out. Um, I'm a master's student here at the University of Manchester, um, and I'm currently working on building a robotic optical telescope in the hope of finding optical counterparts to FRBs. Excellent. James? I'm James Stringer. I'm also an undergraduate here, <laughs> fourth year master's student. I'm working on the same project as Josh, so that's about it, really. Okay, so first question, I guess, is for the majority of our listeners, they've probably heard the term um, fast radio burst or FLBs, but can you tell us what's an FLB? So, my favourite way of describing what an FRB is is effectively as a scream from space. It's a one off signal that we detect only so far in the radio, and we don't know what's causing them. We've found 21 of them so far. Um, one of them has repeated and seems to be different to the others, but like we say, they're of unknown origin, and people are trying to do all they can to find out more about them, which is uh, what James and I are currently working on. Yeah, so one of the things that sets them apart <coughs> from other like similar signals is that they're really bright in the uh, radio band. They're much brighter than any sort of similar source we can see in the radio sky, and that makes them of really good interest to us. Because they're so bright, it means that they're really easy to see, and that means we can use them as a probe for some really interesting physics, some high-energy physics, some cosmology, some other things like that. Another thing that's really interesting about them is that they've got a really high, uh, this thing called a dispersion measure. It describes basically how the w- different wavelengths of the radio waves reach us, and basically, we can use it to sort of determine how far away the signal is. And it looks like, from all the signals we've seen, that they all come from outside our own galaxy. And this means that there could be some really cataclysmic one-off events, such as uh, neutron star mergers, uh, flares on very highly magnetic ma- neutron stars called magnetars, and other really big things like that. And these things, we don't have models for how, they're, like, how they produce the light. And by observing these FRBs in different wavelengths, such as gamma rays or optical waves we can sort of constrain these models and basically determine what makes them and how they're made. Yeah, I've heard it said there are more models for what FLBs are than there are FLBs detected. Yes, yeah. um, my personal favourite is one that I'm convinced is a typo that uses the word supermassive neutron star. It's a, yeah, it's either a typo or someone attempting to get, um, get a new phrase used. I've not seen it anywhere else. <laughs> Actually, one of the leading... Um, <laughs> The reason is that they're from the collapse of neutron stars into black holes. Mm. As if you've got if you've got an overmassive neutron star, then the gravity is too much for the um, like outward pressure of the neutron star to hold, so it will collapse into a black hole. 
and these one-off events that might be what causes it. The chances are very, very slim, however, that they are from extraterrestrials, which is a theory that often gets banded about mm. on the internet somewhere. So we, we've not been, dete- uh, not been communicated with by little green men, unfortunately. <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> yes, <laughs> probably. Okay, do we know that FRBs are visible in the optical wavelength then? The short answer is no. The long answer is maybe. Some of the bursts have been detected in other frequencies. So there's a survey called SWIFT that detected in 2016 a gamma ray source that we've sort of correlated with an FRB source. So that tells us that this source emitted radio waves and gamma rays, which are two opposite ends of the spectrum. So it sort of makes sense that we might be able to see something in the middle of the spectrum, in optical, and, well, hopefully we can observe it. But we don't know what it would look like, how bright it would be, um, what frequency it would be at, really. This is the problem with having a huge number of models. Each model predicts a different amount of optical light, if any, being emitted. We should also say, though, that um, the SWIFT survey, the gamma ray object, um, whilst it appears to be from the same part of sky, we, we can't be certain that it's from the same object. So it might be that, um, because they're from galaxies, that we can't resolve down to the level of individual stars and objects. It may be that it's from two nearby objects and they're unrelated, or it may well be that they are related. The problem... It's a 3.2 sigma. It's a, is it 3.2 sigma? Okay, I take that all back. <laughs> um, 3.2 sigma? So sigma is basically a way of sort of describing the certainty of a measurement being true. So saying 3.2 sigma basically means that we're 99.9% sure that these signals are from the same source. So in astrophysics, we tend to be a bit sort of um, generous with our <laughs> sigmas. And we take three sigma to mean like a good detection. So particle, for example, they take up to five sigma, which is like 99.9999% certain that they're like a, a definite thing. And um, it's a basic way of calibrating, like saying how sure we are of something. So we're pretty sure of this. So it's, it's, it's saying that if we took a thousand random measurements, one of these measurements would be... By chance. By chance, um, would say that these two uh, objects are correlated in some way. All right, so we we hope they're visible at optical wavelengths. We've got an idea they might be, uh, or potentially might be. So tell us what you've been doing about it. So the main issue when it comes to observing uh, any form of transient, so that a transient is a, an astrophysical object that changes over time. Um, when you're observing something that is very, very short, so five milliseconds for an FRB, say, you can't have a detection triggering an alert to another telescope that then goes, oh, I'll have a look at that, because by the time you've actually got around to it and started observing, the chances are the thing has gone. So what we are working on is we're building a secondary telescope to the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell Bank. Uh, It's called Lovell Cam, and it's an optical telescope that will once it's finished, spend its time basically uh, mirroring the or shadowing the observations of Lovell. So where Lovell looks, Lovell Cam also looks. And if we find that Lovell has detected an FRB at some point, uh, we can go back through the uh, data and the observations of Lovell Cam and hopefully discover a counterpart to such a detection. 
So our project was inspired by similar projects, uh, such as Ultracam, which is uh, used to look for various signals across the sky in a similar fashion. Other ones like uh, Mirlicht, which is going to be used with the um, Meerkat precursor to the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array Telescope in um, South Africa. So these are basically optical mini observatories like on the same site as a big radio observatory. And they're doing what Josh said. So we were looking at the same patch of sky as our Lovell telescope, the big 76 metre telescope at Jodrell Bank, and basically looking at it during the night at least. So looking at it all night to um, basically correlate what we see with what they see. So if they see a source, like a FRB candidate, at, say, 1 o'clock in the morning, we can go back through our data to 1 o'clock in the morning and see if we've seen anything in that same patch of sky at the same time. And then if we do see something, then potentially it might be a optical counterpart. What we should say, though, um, is that Mirlift is probably the closest analogue to uh, level cap. However, it's been designed specifically to target transients that last longer than one second. So whilst there is a potential for it to capture FRB counterparts, it's not been designed with that in mind. And so the time, the sort of image timing that it uses um, means that there's actually quite a slim chance of it capturing such a counterpart. You must be taking pictures very quickly if you're uh, looking at five milliseconds. So we want to be taking pictures very quickly, <laughs> but we can't. So our current telescope hardware isn't quite capable enough to do that sort of um, quick turnover of images. Because we're using quite a basic camera, there's sort of some hardware issues. I mean, we can only take an image every, oh, say, let's say, 10 seconds or so. And so if we had a bigger budget, then we could um, basically buy some specialist like, hardware that means we can take these images as soon as the, ne- the last one was done. Lovell Cam is currently in a proof of concept stage, so we are currently constructing the basic framework for such a thing to be created. And once that is complete, we are confident that the uh, university and Jodrell Bank will um, acquiesce to our demands and <laughs> allow us to uh, purchase some more more high end equipment. Um, as currently, what we're using is. Basically, bits that were found around Jodrell Bank, but I mean, they're they're still pretty high quality. We are also investigating how how well we can observe other types of transients, so longer lasting ones such as binary star systems, where you can see one star going in front of the other. We're investigating how uh, Lovell Cam will respond to other transients. There are thoughts on whether or not we would be able to detect exoplanet transits um, in a similar method used by the Kepler telescope and soon to be the TESS, uh, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. We will be able to also investigate uh, things called Cepheid variables, which are a variable type, a type of variable star where we can use measurements of their periodicity to determine a distance to them. So we use them to help measure cosmological distances to nearby galaxies or just to nearby star clusters. From what you've described, this is a fairly mechanical process. If somebody says, oh, the Lovell's seen an FRB, Mm. then you have to go back over the images for the past day or week or however long you install them for. So it does sound mechanical, but in reality it will be automated. So... Like if there's a detection at level, then that would be like processed by the computers there, the processors there, and that sort of would set a flag off, and that would tell our software that operates our telescope that the time and the position of the potential source, and then so we we well, we were working on some sort of um, software to detect from an image we've taken 
FRB and FRB in there. So we could do this a really easy way by sort of comparing it to the images taken just before and just after it. It won't, there won't be that FRB in those two images because it's such a short burst. And that'd be a sort of fairly good idea of if it is there. And then once you sort of narrow down our choice or options, basically, there is well, there might well be some sort of component of human interaction with this. So we'd actually go through ourselves and have a look at them and compare. That looks like it's in the same place. It's the same sort of rough brightness, same time. It's not as quite as manual as it all sounds. A lot of this is done automated behind the scenes by the software of both Lovell Telescope and Lovell Cam itself. And this is the case with most observatories, actually. Most of the um, processing is done by computer programs rather than people. I mean, the end result is obviously done by people. But, like, these telescopes get hours and hours and hours of data, sometimes even days of data, that you couldn't go through by hand, really. And we're sort of using the same ideas as that for ours. Okay. Oh, that sounds good. You mentioned the telescope. Um, what kind of telescope are you using? Well, um, we are using an 11-inch reflecting telescope. It's all right for what we're hoping to achieve. However, ideally, we want to be using as large a telescope as possible. Part of what Lovell Cam is trying to achieve uh, are observations on a very low budget. There are obviously budget issues at the moment for everyone. And so if we can achieve successful science in this area with relatively little money compared to what is, say, being pumped into the SKA, then we will be able to replicate this as a system at other places. So one of the main issues we have at the moment is the fact that we're trying to build this in Cheshire, which is both quite light polluted and incredibly cloudy, which means that any observations you're trying to do in the optical optical bands are quite difficult. However, the idea of shadowing observations of another telescope doesn't mean that you have to be at the same location as it. So obviously Lovell is a radio telescope and radio telescopes aren't really bothered by clouds. So Jodrell Bank is primarily a radio telescope. We could theoretically move Lovell Cam to somewhere in the world that was clear, generally clearer at night and with less light pollution. We can still observe the same parts of sky or a lot of the same parts of sky as Lovell, which would mean that we would be in a position to actually start making more regular observations most days of the year, or nights of the year, I suppose I should say. So our telescope is just an off-the-shelf, commercially available telescope. It's not like a specialist-built uh, specialist uh, piece of equipment. It is everything, Amazon everything we are using is commercially available. The telescope setup we have costs less than £4,000. So it's, it's a bit more than your sort of standard telescope, yeah. but it's no, it's no million-dollar project. No, I mean, it's well within the, the grasp of most amateur astronomers. Mm. I mean, I know quite a few people that start small and quickly build mm. up to that, that scale of instrument, that scale of spend um, on their equipment. So it is perfectly possible Definitely, yeah. to do good cutting-edge science. I mean, the telescope we are using doesn't even actually belong to Jodrell Bank. It's a telescope that was kindly donated to us by uh, Professor Tim O'Brien who um, is the director at Jodrell, or was. I actually don't know. I'm not sure myself. It, it <laughs> does change. Yes. Which, whichever, whichever hat Tim is currently wearing. At the time, he was jo- uh, director. Yeah, if, if you're a keen amateur astronomer yeah. and you want some uh, well, a project for about two and a half years, then yeah, make your own novel cam DIY. 
Or alternatively, there is a potential that once Lovell Cam is complete, um, we could put our software out um, as an open source thing and try and sort of crowdsource some observations of, uh, from people who, say, aren't using their telescopes all the time. That's an interesting concept. So if there was someone yeah. on the other side of the world, so when it's day here, it'd be night there, they could look at the same place Lovell's looking at and we could get nearly 24-hour observations to match with Lovell and that'd be well, that'd double our chances of seeing well, FRB. We are, we're also currently um, implementing the functionality to not just shadow Lovell's observations. So like at the moment, we can shadow the observations of any radio telescope in on the eMerlin network. So that's... Uh, nine telescopes across the UK but we could also help uh, shadow the observations of Arthur and uh, VLBI networks so these are large uh, interferometers that are continent or even half the world size once you start including Chinese telescopes in the VLBI that is something that we're hoping will uh, allow us to really start getting some uh, useful data and once we start getting up to that size that scale um, a network of telescopes is something a network of cheap telescopes that are capable of still capable of making the observations and detections that we require would be ideal sounds like another research project in the offing certainly um, a, a development program in there definitely definitely hopefully <laughs> <laughs> okay just to um Come back. Have you got exams? So you um, do you have to pass an exam at this or submit reports at the end of the year? Yeah. So we're currently writing up our reports on this. Um, nice, tasty, thirty-page report. Excellent. Uh, yeah. yeah um, we are. We will be presenting the the current status of Lovell Cam and where we're at to the JBCA. We're actually presenting to the uh, group out at Jodrell Bank tomorrow. I don't know if I've told you about this yet, but we are. Um, <laughs> um, Sorry, being the tenth uh, of May. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Of course. Yes. And I mean, alongside this, we we've got a few other exams. After this, this is my last year on the Lovell Cam project directly. I'm going off to. Well, I'm not. I'm staying at Manchester, but I will be uh, working to help detect exoplanets um, and analyze their composition in the hope of working out what on earth a lot of things are made out of. And uh, I'm moving okay. to the Pulsar group here at Manchester. So I'm going to be working to um, search for and study extreme neutron star systems called uh, Black Widows and Redbacks. This is where you have a neutron star and a uh, similar size star to our sun in a very close binary orbit. And we're going to use those to study uh, very high energy physics, very fundamental physics. And that's my PhD project. Excellent. So... Welcome to the uh, Pulsar Group. Yes. That's the area I study in. Uh, a fellow inmate. Yes, I, on the other hand, am leaving the Pulsar Group. So. Uh, <laughs> Some people do escape. Yes. Okay, um, I guess this would be a very different interview if we'd actually detected an FRB and yeah. we've got an optical observation. Any ideas, potentially, how long it could take? So, the, the current status of level cam means... Uh, we, we have an issue with the true automation of it. Um, so for it to become fully um, capable of just sort of waking up when it's night 
doing some observations and putting itself away. We have issues with the uh, dome that the telescope is currently housed in. If we can sort that and get get some new get a new shed for it, effectively, I would say that with some dedicated work, Lovell Cam could be up and operational in about a year, maybe a year and a half. Even when it is operational, though, the time between it first light and it actually detecting an FRB might be quite a while. So it's estimated that there are 10,000 FRBs from anywhere in the sky in one day. But over the last uh, 11 years, we've only detected 18. Or did you say 21? I think it's 18. 21. Oh, yes, the FRB, FRB cat cat has, has 18. No, it's got 21. They've got 21 now. Well, maybe China, maybe I checked this morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my report then. So... Over the last uh, 10 or so years, I've actually detected 21 FRBs, as Josh said. <laughs> That's less than, well, less than three a year. So I mean, the first one was detected in yeah, 2007 by Lorimer. I can't remember where it was, though. Was, was it Parks, I think? Yes, it's yeah, old yeah. data. From so most of these are from data from the Parks Telescope or the Arecibo Telescope. And both of those aren't committed as much to VLBI work or emailing work as Lovell is. So... However, we do have people here at Jodl Bank working specifically on FRB detection. So Charlie Walker, who I believe is one of your present presenters, works in that area. Co-executive um, producer of the Jodcast. Well, so uh, a very busy man. Yes, it's a very long title. Yep. Um, and um, there are people working alongside Charlie who are building pipelines to automate and flag up these detections. Mm which should hopefully make our life on Lovell Camp uh, easier. But I guess uh, I guess the answer is then we still don't really know. Yes. The the answer the answer to a lot of questions about FRBs is we d- just don't know. Okay, and on that note, then we'll close. Fantastic. Josh, James, thank you very much. Thanks thank for your you. time today. Thanks for that, Tom. Now, Monique and Tom interviewed Dr. Elisabetta Valiente about Herschel Atlas. So, hi, I'm here today with Tom Scragg, and we're interviewing Dr. Elisabetta Valiante from the University of Cardiff. Welcome to the Jodcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, It's good to have you here, and it's Tom's first time interviewing, I believe. Yes, first time, so it could be a bit stuttery and horrible, but we'll see how we go. (laughs) Um, Well, glad to have you here, and um, could you start off by just giving us a brief overview of what, what your research is about? Um, I work on extragalactic surveys, in particular with Herschel. Herschel is a, a European uh, experiment that is not flying anymore, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but we still have a lot of data to analyze. So um, I'm a member of uh, Herschel Atlas, that is uh, the biggest extragalactic survey, and uh, we already did the first public data release last June, and we are working for the second data release. So what we observe um, are uh, galaxies, in particular at high redshift, but also local galaxies, and uh, to observe the galaxies Uh, um, with these instruments they need to be dusty so the the dustier the galaxies here uh, are the more um, stars they form and we're interested in these galaxies uh, forming galaxies because it means they are very active it means they are uh, uh, creating a lot of stars, they have a lot of energy, and uh, we know that in the past the galaxies formed more stars than we do today, so it's very interesting to look at how this star formation changed during the time uh, looking back in time and when you talk about dusty galaxies, um, what, what do you mean by dust and where does that come from? 
Oh, this is a very big question. <laughs> it is not exactly my topic of research, mm-hmm. but uh, it's a big issue to understand where this uh, dust comes from. Uh, it's formed by stars. So we know that in the, st- the stars start from uh, hydrogen and they build the heavier elements. So eventually we expect these elements to become uh, heavier and heavier. And also particularly we expect uh, these uh, heavy elements that forms the dust uh, to be formed in supernovae or uh, AGB stars. Mm-hmm. So they are injected uh, like at the last stages of the life or AGB stars or they are ejected when uh, the dust is ejected when a supernova explodes. Mm-hmm. But it is a topic, it's a very hot topic and it's not very clear how dust forms and where it comes from, how much is from supernova, how much is from stars, which, uh, if it depends by the galaxy, if it depends from uh, other kind of environments, uh, nobody knows. <laughs> oh, that's really great because I always hear people talk about dust and never knew there was this mystery <laughs> behind it. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask, you talk about dust. What's the difference then between dust and gas? Uh, well, the, the, the gas is a lighter element. So the gas is mainly composed by uh, oxygen, carbon, or uh, just hydrogen. Actually, we have uh, molecular hydrogen, atomic hydrogen. And this is the kind of, uh, the kind of gas we, we see in the universe. Uh, while uh, when we talk about dust, uh, it's actually dust. So they are heavy components. They are made by silicate, by uh, chains of carbons. So they are mar- more complex molecules. And they are very important in the star formation because they are very complex mo- uh, molecule. They help the gas to get together. So we know that uh, to form stars uh, is the gas that has to collapse but uh, uh, where we have a a big amount of dust uh, this collapse is easier just because uh, uh, well the the different molecule uh, of gas get attached to the molecule of dust and uh, it's easier to collapse them together and to to start the gravitational growth that we need to to form stars so it kind of clumps them together yes seeds the gravitational collapse so that's the reason why the, the dust is a proxy for mm-hmm. star formation, so we measure the dust and we can uh, we can say, oh, we measure a lot of dust, we expect a lot of star formation for uh, for this galaxy. So for uh, where you are lucky, you can measure independently amount of dust and amount of star formation, but uh, once this thing has been done for uh, a reasonable number of galaxies in different env- environments, we saw that the two things actually correlate. So now we just, for most of the galaxies in particular, the one at high redshift uh, that are far away from us, so they're difficult to to be detected, uh, it's difficult for them to measure the amount of gas. We just measure the amount of dust that is most e- more easier and we just uh, derive from it the amount of gas and the star formation rate. Ah, that makes sense. Okay. So what, are you, what questions are you trying to answer with Herschel? Is um, when most of the stars have, are for, have been formed and uh, how is the, the activity of the galaxies changed so how much energy the, the galaxies are uh, emitting during their history there was one press release uh, not made by Herschel but made by another collaboration on, uh, that is close to, to our each other's collaboration and the press release uh, the title was uh, the universe is dying oh. it was a very fancy <laughs> and catchy way to see that uh, the universe in the past was much more active energetic than it is now <laughs> uh, yeah. that does sound better <laughs> that's true um so in the past um galaxies were much more active they were creating many, many more stars and that kind of thing is that right yes yeah and what's the reason for that oh well uh that is a good another good question 
possibly because we had the, the biggest amount of gas that hasn't collapsed yet, so it was easier to collapse it together. And also because the universe was smaller. So because the universe was smaller, it was easier for the galaxy to interact together, so to get to merge and to, to have closer interactions. Uh, so uh, it was much more likely. And when galaxies interact together, the gas gets compressed and they form more stars. So once uh, the universe has expanded enough, these interactions are less likely and uh, so it's more difficult to compress the gas and it creates a big amount of stars. But again, this is another big question because, for example, there is a, um, a theory or a model um, that is called downsizing that tell us that is what we actually measure, that the biggest galaxies go, were at the top of their uh, activities in the past and now they look like dead, so they, don't, they are not forming galaxies anymore, while now they are the smallest galaxies that are much more active, have the higher star formation rate. So why is this? It's not very clear. Mm-hmm. There are different cosmological models that try to Display this, but uh, it's not very clear why uh, the the bigger galaxies started to form a lot of stars before and they stopped, mm-hmm. and uh, while the the smaller galaxies are are doing it now because mm-hmm. now we observe high star formation rates in very small galaxies in what we call dwarf galaxies. Mm-hmm. So it's a bigger question why activity was very strong in the past, and another bigger question is why it stopped. So we think that it stopped because uh, at some point uh, an AGN, an active galactic uh, nucleus, formed in the center of the of the of the galaxy, mm-hmm. and so all the energy, all the very uh, strong energy from this uh, AGN, uh, just destroyed the molecules of gas or warmed them up because you get the best uh, star formation when there is cold gas because you need it to collapse together. If there is too much energy, if there are to, there is too much radiation, uh, you don't get any star formation. So this mm-hmm. is one of um, the theories that mm-hmm. try to explain why the star formation was so strong and then eventually stopped. Mm-hmm. So this idea that um, at some point the active galactic nuclei are turned on to some extent and they have an injection of heat and energy, yes. which would prevent star formation. But then I guess that just passes on the question because then the question is what, what caused the AGN? <laughs> Um, it's probably just the, the galaxies assembling together. So uh, I think the the main the, the very easy picture of this point of view is just uh, is just at the beginning uh, there is just gas and the gas starts to collapse following the um, the gravitational field generated by the dark matter. So you you, you start with dark matter that uh, generates some gravitational field in some regions. The dark matter is denser than in other regions. So you have the gas falling into this uh, dark matter. Uh, gravity uh, gravity holes and uh, and they start to collapse and form stars when you have enough and uh, we have to create a galaxies a galaxy uh, the stars continue to to fall in the center uh, in the center in the nucleus and eventually they will collapse together and form a black hole now, of course, the process is not very clear and probably what I'm saying, because it's not exactly my topic of research, is not 100% correct. Mm-hmm. But when the, the black hole is big enough, is energetic enough, it starts to emit in X-rays and then it stops the, the star formation and then it becomes a very powerful AGN. So we expect mm-hmm. a galactic, a massive black hole in the mm-hmm. center of each galaxy. Not all of them become active. So we don't know, for example, where we know that there is a galactic um, black hole in the center of our galaxy. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, fortunately, it is not active. We don't know if it's, it's been active in the past or not. Mm-hmm. But it might be one day, possibly. You never know. I don't think it will become active. 
because yeah. our galaxy is not doesn't have so much doesn't have such a strong star formation mm-hmm. rate that uh, will activate the black hole mm-hmm. and probably we don't want it <laughs> yeah, yeah that's true so going back to herschel as well because you i gather you're quite um you've been quite involved with herschel uh well herschel atlas so what kind of challenges have there been in that project well herschel atlas is a big, very big survey so i think the the biggest challenge has been sociological because there are a <laughs> lot of people in the collaboration and uh, we have to agree all together if not all of them at least the core team has to agree uh, with the major decisions so it has been hard sometimes uh, to get uh, everybody <laughs> in agreement with mm-hmm. w- what we were doing but we did at the end so it was good it was nice to collaborate with so many people mm-hmm. uh, it was nice uh, to, to help so many people because I was responsible for the catalogs and the data mm-hmm. so everybody writing papers uh, on different topics mm-hmm. uh, eventually they came to me asking a re- recommendation or suggestions or some help in how to deal with the data or about the properties of the noise and the properties of uh, and the uncertainty, some fluxes of, of single sources. So it, it, it was very nice. Mm-hmm. And from uh, the more practical point of view, I have to say that mm, Herschel, Spire in particular, the instrument mm-hmm. we have used for uh, for our survey has been an amazing instrument. So it worked mm-hmm. way better than uh, it was expected. Oh. So in principle, H Atlas was supposed to be a very shallow survey, a survey that looked only in the, the close-by universe. But at the end, we did some high redshift uh, science as well. So mm-hmm. it was just a surprise. We didn't expect mm-hmm. it at the beginning, but the data were uh, good enough to do to, to better than uh, we expected. Oh, that's always uh, nice to have it that way around. So you mentioned before that um, you can use dust to trace star formation and it's much easier to observe like how dusty a galaxy was than it can be sometimes to measure the star formation. Yes. Is that right? So what makes it easier to measure the dust than it is to look at the star formation? Well, to measure the dust is a photometric measurement. So you just need a camera that measures the flux in even one in the worst case or two or three different wavelengths. So in our mm-hmm. case, we have the Spire camera that measured the emission at 250, 350 and 500 micron that just trace the peaks of the emission of the dust. We expect the dust to emit more or less as a black body. Depends if a galaxy is close by or far away or it depends if a galaxy is cold or warm, uh, the shape, the, the ratio between the flux in these three wavelengths will be slightly different, but more or less we expect to, to trace the peak of the, of the dust emission. While for the gas, it's a spectroscopic measurement. So you know, when you do spectroscopy, you need to measure very uh, shallow lines. So you need mm-hmm. different instruments that are more complicated to be than photometry instruments. And also you need to observe for longer time because the, the signal is weaker, extended over a very short wavelength range mm-hmm. so it's usually just more expensive from any point of view then of course you can do it you you apply for a telescope time and uh, you integrate for hours sometimes mm-hmm. and you can uh, and you can measure the the lines uh, um the molecular or atomic lines for the the galaxy you are uh, you are interested in but you do it for one galaxy so sometimes it takes few hours for each galaxy mm-hmm. while when you do photometry you just observe a big patch of the sky and you measure thousands of galaxies in it and you have the the, the fluxes uh, in three bands uh, uh, with just one scan for uh, several galaxies so mm-hmm. it's uh, it's much easier and uh, cheaper <laughs> yeah, get more galaxies <laughs> 
And you, you said you've been involved with compiling the catalogue for Herschel. Yes. Us. Yeah. I, as I am, I'm not an observational astronomer at all. What does that actually, what does that involve? Because I have no idea. <laughs> uh, well, you have what is called the uh, timeline data from the instrument. So mm-hmm. it means that each for each bolometer, you know um, what. A camera is made by mm-hmm. different bolometers that are the detectors uh, mm-hmm. of the instrument. And for each bolometer, you know, you have the information of each uh, time, mm-hmm. uh, what is the position is looking at, and which is the flux that is measuring. Okay. So you get, uh, you have several bolometers. Mm-hmm. Actually, I can't say there are maybe tens, if not hundreds of bolometers in the spire camera. I'm not sure what, yeah, uh, yeah, what is fine. the number. Mm-hmm. But uh, you put together this information from all the bolometers and you build a map. Okay. So in the map, you have uh, each pixel in the maps uh, mm-hmm. is one position and uh, all the informations uh, given by different polometer about mm-hmm. that position are averaged together. Mm-hmm. So in this way, you have uh, several uh, you have independent uh, information, mm-hmm. independent measurements of the flux in that specific point, mm-hmm. And you put together all the pixels in your map and you mm-hmm. have uh, information of the flux in... Um, small or large, depending how, la- how big your survey is, a patch mm-hmm. of the sky. And then when once you have your map, you usually also know the uncertainty with each pixel. And then you look for uh, peaks in the in the signal to noise map. Mm-hmm. So in this map, there will be intrinsic noise. So there will be fluctuations that uh, is just noise. When you see a positive fluctuation that is like uh, two, three, four or five sigma, uh, five mm-hmm. times uh, the average fluctuations, uh, you may assume that it's very unlikely that that fluctuation is just noise, but mm-hmm. it will probably be a source. So you just select uh, peaks of the noise. Mm-hmm. If you select uh, three sigma or five sigma um, mm-hmm. fluctuations, so you are sure that you only, for example, uh, 0.1% of your sources are fake sources, are just flu- fluctuation of the noise, but all the rest will be real sources. Mm-hmm. So you have to go through and pick out the sources and... Uh, well, there are codes that ah, okay, do so this. it's not a manual thing. I, no, I, no, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> we we passed that point. In <laughs> some fields it is, so I always ask. Um, I think that was something that surprised me in astronomy is how many things are done manually. <laughs> Sorry, it's very ask. hard work. Um, it's a computational thing. There are codes oh, that okay. look for uh, peaks uh, and uh, they're also able... Well, uh, depending who wrote uh-huh. the code, but they're also able to understand if they are reliable peaks uh-huh. or not, uh, uh, because of course uh, you know which is the um, the transfer function of the instrument. So what you have in the sky is uh, a single point source, uh-huh. uh, but what you have in your map uh, is like a round patch, ah. and this depends <laughs> on the fact that the the instrument has a transfer function. So what is a very very sharp peak, uh, uh-huh. a delta will become something that is more uh, that is more spread it's like mm-hmm. a gaussian f- so it shape it. Oh, okay. yes but we know what is the transfer function of the instrument mm-hmm. is called point spread function so what we look in the map is for things that have mm-hmm. the same shape of the of the point spread function of the instrument if something is a weird shape it's very very spiky mm-hmm. maybe it's just uh, a glitch in the in the electronics uh, mm-hmm. a glitch and uh, uh, some unexpected noise but is likely not a source mm-hmm. So um, we've talked a little bit about what you have been working on. What are you looking forward to over the next few years, whether it's in your own work or in the field in general or for, you know, Herschel data? Uh, well, regarding Herschel data, regarding the project, I'm, we are working for a second data release. So the, the, the field we observed uh, were very, very, was very, very large. There were actually different mm-hmm. fields. So we did a public release last summer for uh, one third of the, of the area we observed. And we plan to, by the summer, a second data release with uh, the rest of the data. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm also working uh, to do science uh, on this data. So uh, I'm working on the number counts, uh, on the AGN content of these galaxies, uh, on the clustering on these galaxies. So I have several projects, me on, or the, the students uh, the, uh, that I follow are working on. For the future, future, <laughs> uh, well, we'll think to cross-correlate this data with the uh, surveys that will come. So there is SKA that will cover large portions of the sky in the radio. And so we will use the information we already have about from the far infrared and we cross-correlate with, uh, with um, radio sources. Uh, and it will be interesting to see what, what comes from. What kind of thing could you expect to learn from that, from the cross-correlation, from looking at the two surveys well um we expect uh, uh, the the sources uh, to emit the the star forming galaxies uh, to emit in the radio as well um there is actually a correlation a very tight correlation between the far infrared and uh, and the radio just because uh, the <clears throat> We have the, the emission from the dust is, um, is at the far infrared, but the stars, the very young stars that just formed, they emit in the radio because of a synchrotron, a synchrotron emission. So they are very tightly correlated because they are mapping the same physical phenomenon that is a very young star where you, you have star formation. So on one side, we measure the amount of dust that helps the, the gas to collapse. On the other side, we measure the signal that comes from the, the stars, the very big stars that just formed mm-hmm. so there is a very tight correlation but having um, it, until now it was harder to get uh, measurement radio measurement from large patch of sky so we usually have measurements on single object or there are um, uh, radio surveys but they're not so big mm-hmm. but having something like SKA that is be able to do survey on a large area mm-hmm. it might be survey to compare with given that uh, Earth Atlas uh, is uh, the largest extragalactic survey made with Herschel so it's the largest map we have in the far infrared. Mm-hmm. One problem when you look at the sky is that if you look at a patch of sky that is too small you have what is called cosmic variance. So you might measure something, you might think you might learn something about the universe mm-hmm. but you are only looking at a very small patch. So maybe you are measuring uh, uh, again a fluctuation uh, maybe you are measuring something very very peculiar. It's like uh, if you look at uh, the human body and, uh, and, uh, and you only look at the nail, you might think that we are covered like uh, <laughs> something very hard like nails mm-hmm. but it's just because you are looking uh, a very small patch and you've been lucky mm-hmm. because you picked a point that is not very characteristic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a good analogy. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what, um, it's good to observe large areas mm-hmm. because you get a good idea of what really is uh, the, uh, how really is the universe on average and you mm-hmm. can also measure if there are specific uh, things that change uh, on mm-hmm. small or large scale just because you have such a large area you can uh, you can see how the the, the properties fluctuate mm-hmm. and uh, and you also can discover very rare objects mm-hmm. because if an object is rare there are not so by definition yeah. there are not so many of them mm-hmm. and of course if you look at a very small patch of the sky it's mm-hmm. very unlikely you find it so looking in a very large portion of the sky is important from this point of view both to understand um, how the universe works mm-hmm. on average without having the, the problem of the cosmic variance and mm-hmm. it's possible to, f- uh, to find a very extreme or very rare or very mm-hmm. weird objects that are very difficult to find. Mm-hmm. Weird is always good in astronomy, I think. Um, Can I just ask, how long does the, the survey take actually on Herschel? So how long are you collecting data? 
And then how long does it take you to analyze that data to oh, get to the... I can say how long it took to analyze the data. I'm actually, I can't tell how many hours. I should look at the proposal. I cannot, I, I cannot tell how many hours uh, observation time it has been. We observed 600 uh, square degrees. Mm-hmm. And well, there was a first release. It was just a few months after uh, the observations. So the first portion of the sky, it was a four, uh, four by four square degrees. It was released uh, quite soon. But then because we wanted to do a very good job, probably even too much, <laughs> uh, we spent four more years to to wow. do this data release with one third of the data. Well, I have to say what we've learned in these four years, uh, it will be applied also to the other two thirds. So we are not spending two times more time for the for the other uh, for that to release the other maps. Mm-hmm. But there was so much to analyze and then understand mm-hmm. about the properties of the noise, uh, about uh, to be sure that the tools we were using, like mm-hmm. the code to extract the sources, was really working and was doing what we expected to do. So mm-hmm. when you do this kind of job, you have to run a lot of simulations. So it's not only doing the job once, like extracting the sources and measure the flux. You have to do this job a lot of times on different synthetic maps to be sure that you are doing what you think you are doing and not something else. Because as you know, probably very even better than me, when you write a code, it's not always true that it does what you want it to do. <laughs> no, I, I think that's a great point because I think people often think, you know, once you've, you get your telescope and you get an image straight away and you can just go do science and they kind of forget there's all this process in between and checking yeah. that works and... Yeah, all the work that goes into it. And every instrument's unique and mm. the way it behaves is, is different from everyone else. So yeah, and with every instrument, um, it's always like starting from scratch because, uh, um, yeah, you must tune your calls, you mu- uh, must tune everything for the specifics of the instruments. That's why it's so important to work closer with people that built the instruments or uh, uh, calibrate the instruments mm. or wrote the code, uh, the, all the codes for the instruments mm. to understand better what's going on. Mm. So thank you very much for coming on the Dreadcast and hopefully we'll have you on again sometime in the future. Thank I you. hope so. Thank you. Okay. Thank, thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Tom and Monique. And now here's some of the stuff we thought you might find interesting, the odds and ends. My odd and end for this month comes from Houston, Texas, where the main optical assembly of the James Webb Space Telescope has arrived at the Johnson Space Center for a few months of cryo-testing. This testing is going to be going on in hard vacuum at a temperature of 50 Kelvin for about three months to try and simulate the conditions that the optics will be put through while the telescope is actually out operating in space. So it's to check whether all of the optics are still functioning and ready as they should be. This is the second round of testing for the JWST optics. It's already passed extensive vibration testing to simulate the conditions that the telescope is actually going to be put through when it launches. So the vibration testing, what is that? From what I could tell from the photos, it was just a really big shake table (laughs) with $4 billion worth of hardware on it. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's going into a vacuum at 50 degrees Kelvin. Yes. Or at least it will be at 50 degrees Kelvin because it takes them a month to cool the chamber down. Wow. Yeah, it's a that, big chamber. That big chamber. <laughs> to what temperature? Uh, to 50 Kelvin. Yeah. So as a bit of background, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be replacing the Hubble, right? That's the idea of it? Yes. Um... I mean, it is difficult to overstate the expectations that are being put on this instrument. So what are the improvements that it's going to have over the Hubble? Uh, well, the main mirror is much bigger for a start. It's 6.7 metres diameter, if my memory serves. Where are they going to put it? 
I believe they're going to put it at L2. Okay. Ah, I love that. We were talking about that in the last show, actually, the Lagrange points and putting stuff up there. It's brilliant. It's like having shelves in space and you can just kind of leave, <laughs> <laughs> and you can just kind of leave things on them. <laughs> but of course, the obvious disadvantage of that is if anything goes wrong, it's too far away for us to fix it. Yeah, it's right. not easy to get to work. Ah, it's like the top shelves in my kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, because of course... Yeah, because Hubble had trouble with its mirrors when it was first launched. But yeah, and then I was thinking, like, what happens at L2? So they're sending James Webb up there, and suppose they send, like, more stuff up there. Is there a point at which it starts to get cluttered? Can you send too much stuff up there? I imagine so, yeah. And what would that look like, exactly? Would the point shift, or would... Well, the point itself arises from the dynamics between the the Earth and The gravitational potentials. I imagine that the amount that you could even put up in a Lagrange point would yeah. be so minuscule that it wouldn't shift. You're effectively moving stuff off the Earth a little bit further out. Yeah. And as it's just between the Earth and the Sun anyway, you'd have mm-hmm. to move a large chunk of the Earth's matter. L1 and L2 aren't, and L3 actually aren't that stable anyway. Yeah. You've got to mm. continuously correct the position of right, the thing because it can right. easily fall out. I mean, so obviously that... this is a hypothetical. I don't think humans yeah. are going to send that much stuff up there, but yeah. it's an interesting... It's it sounds like thought. a really horrible exam question. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. L's 4 and 5 are bigger you can fit more stuff in there and they're more stable right. but of course you're not shielded by the earth in l2 the earth mm. is in front of the sun and so you can keep things cold um, i imagine that a more relevant sort of way of posing this question would be what if we decided to bring meteorites or asteroids into lagrange orbits in order to mine them because then you'd be bringing Ooh, then you would matter. be bringing something quite massive yeah from somewhere else and using mm. it as massive yeah, it does sound like a nasty exam question. Johnny has two apples and three oranges. Calculate the mass of the sun. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, is that everything you had to say about the James Webb Telescope? I think that's it for now, yeah. The Ooh. testing is scheduled to begin in July, where they'll start calling the chamber down, and then it'll be three months of testing from the beginning okay. of August. Okay. But sure while all that is happening, effectively the other half of the telescope So that's actually the mounting for the optics, the electronics, the propulsion. That is all currently under construction in California. And so all things being well, the two halves will then come together for a further round of tests in March next year. When will it launch? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm not going to answer that. I don't want to tempt fate. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Well... My on end is another thing about Pluto, which I've talked about a lot on here in the past, because I like it. So, as you all know, we know a lot more about Pluto now than we used to, and we're learning new things every day, it seems. There's been some discussion recently, so most of our listeners are probably familiar with the the new images that came out of Pluto in in the recent past, where you could see a big kind of heart-shaped feature on the surface, and... That was very obvious and very easy to spot. What you may not have realised is that there's another feature which people are calling a whale. Whether or not you think it actually looks like a whale is it's up to you. <laughs> Just underneath and to the left of the heart, there's a kind of a big dark red sort of patch of Pluto, I guess. So scientists are discussing what might have caused that feature to occur. And there's one school of thought, there's one crowd that are saying, oh, they think it's older than the rest of the surface. They've looked at the colour of it mainly and they've done tests on the kinds of chemicals that they think it's formed of down here on Earth to simulate the effects of ageing on those chemicals. And they found, even though they don't have four billion years to play with down here, they found that 
given the elapsing of that amount of time, the kind of chemicals that are on there could have generated that kind of colour. So they, they're saying, oh, it's really old, it's much older than the heart bit. So that sounds all very nice. But then there's another gang of astronomers who are like, no, no, you're wrong. It's younger, it's newer than the rest of Pluto. And they said, oh, it's plausible that it might be really old if it was a very thick layer, but they think it's not a thick layer. They think it's quite thin, actually, and that it's a thin layer of newer material that's formed due to atmospheric reactions and methane is somehow involved and that they think actually it's a, it's a thin layer of material that's been deposited over older material. So how is each of these two groups trying to measure the thickness of that layer, <clears throat> given that's the, the sticking point? Well, yeah, exactly. All I know is that the second group say that it doesn't seem to be thick, so they seem to have found some way of measuring it already. What that is, I don't know. I mean, I know they didn't just have optical images, they had multi-frequency analysis of it, so maybe there's something in that that would have given them more information about the thickness, but I'm not sure. Their conclusion, anyway, is given all the information that they have, they just don't know and they're going to have to send more stuff out there. So, Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> given that none of that equipment has been sent yet, we're probably going to be waiting <laughs> waiting a while to get answers on this one. But probably still before JWST. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's entirely yeah. possible. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I guess they're looking at things like craters and other surface features, which are which are usually like a said general rule of thumb that the more craters something has, the older it is. Cause it's not, but not necessarily, but they too tend to be correlated because the longer it's been around, the more time they've had to form. Mm. The more time. Yeah. So there's other things they can be looking at in the meantime. So that's all the news today from Pluto. Cool. Well, that's as good a reason as any to go back. Yeah, exactly. Well, absolutely. It would be. I like that they're kind of leaving these sort of cliffhangers to yeah. encourage <laughs> encourage further missions to Pluto. Because yeah. you know, if our curiosity isn't piqued, then we won't be bothered to send any more things out there. Yeah, it's like the issue with Enceladus and how plausible it is that there might be life there. Yeah. That means necessarily that we have to go back and have a look. Exactly. With yeah, something with yeah. Cassini's successor, yeah. whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. So talking about things on the surface that tell us about other things, a group at the University of Kansas have done some calculations on what they think the supernova kill zone is with respect to the Earth. So how far can a supernova happen away from the Earth such that we are safe from its effects? And they've looked at some isotopes in the surface of the Earth. The abundance of iron-60 in the Earth is such that there must have been a supernova that impacted the Earth within the last few million years. The reason they know this is because iron-60, to form that you need a very large abundance of neutrons. It's formed by something called the S-process in the core-collapse supernovae. But iron-60 has a half-life of about 2.6 million years. And the Earth is significantly older than that, so if iron-60 had been there when the Earth formed, it would have long decayed by now. So something has put iron-60 on the surface of the Earth, and the only known mechanism for forming iron-60, the only known environment in which there is a sufficient flux of free neutrons is in a type 2 supernova. So their conclusion from this is that there was a supernova or a pair of supernova that happened around sort of two to three million years ago. At that point, that was before there were any humans on Earth. There were mammals, but the, the genus Homo, of which we are Homo sapiens, wasn't around quite yet. But there were no mass extinctions around that time. But there were smaller local extinctions. There was a high extinction rate overall around that time. And so this prompted this University of Kansas group to go on and look at the effects of supernova on Earth. If a supernova was to happen now, what would the effects be on the Earth? What would the effects be on us? And just how catastrophic would it be? 
And so you can imagine the scenario where you're walking down the street, you know, having done your shopping, maybe bought a book at Waterstones or whatever, and you see some huge flash in the sky. Suddenly get massive. And then your skin starts falling off. <laughs> not, well, probably not quite yet. You know, there'll be a big flash in the sky. If it was something like Spiker, which might blow fairly soon, which is a blue giant star, which is kind of nearing the end of its life, and is near enough possibly to cause a problem, then it would be big enough to be seen during the day. You could quite comfortably read by its light at night. It would cast long shadows, etc. So the first thing we would notice, of course, on Earth is a huge flux of neutrinos because neutrinos can pass through pretty much anything. They'll just laugh all the way through any material. And they would actually arrive before the light would because light gets quite easily slowed but down by stuff along the way. So the first thing we would see in our neutrino detectors like Super Cameo Candy or whatever is a huge flux of neutrinos. The light would arrive and it'd be nice. It'd be there for a few weeks before it eventually died down. And so what this group did was look at the different things that from a supernova that could actually hurt you. So the kinetic impact, the stuff that comes off it, hitting the atmosphere. They put a model supernova 50 parsecs, so 163 light years away from the Earth, and just simulated what would happen to the Earth. The kinetic impact will be quite low because we actually aggregate quite a lot of stuff over the course of a day anyway, just from meteor impacts. At 50 parsecs, 163 light years, we're not going to get much more than that from a supernova at that mm -hmm. distance. Mm -hmm. Might see a little blip in the amount of stuff we accumulate, but nothing more. The light from it, as I said, it'd be easy visible during the day, but really it's just going to be annoying more than anything else if you're trying to sleep. Um, neutrino flux, you know, if a neutrino strikes a bit of DNA, it could cause a, a cancerous mutation, but the, the chances of that are quite low. And for you to be destroyed by neutrinos, a supernova would have to be at the position of the sun, which of course isn't going to happen. Our sun is going to do that. The biggest danger is from gamma rays, x-rays and cosmic rays. We are shielded quite well from ultraviolet rays by our atmosphere. But of course, gamma rays and x-rays, which are quite high in flux away from a supernova, have the effect of destroying ozone. And if you destroy ozone, you then allow all this ultraviolet stuff to come to the surface where it would destroy algae, which is you know the base of the food chain. And it would basically interact with your DNA, cause mutations that would lead to cancers. And so the impact on us from a supernova within 163 light years is that there'd be a big flash in the sky, everybody would get back to their business, and then everybody would pretty much get cancer. Wait, that's so, what would happen? <laughs> Yes, within 163 light years of supernova goes, but there is, will be mass extinctions on Earth, but protracted ones. It wouldn't be an instantaneous event. Is that over the entire Earth? Because surely it would only be one side of the Earth that was facing a supernova. Would mm. that destroy the whole ozone layer over the whole of the Earth? The problem is it would ionise the atmosphere, mm. and that front of ionisation is likely to propagate around the atmosphere, so you may well get global mass extinctions. Basically, you're unprotected from the UV radiation from the sun after this thing's hit the atmosphere, and so... That's not going to be good for any of us. The reason we can survive down here is because we've got the atmosphere. If you're an astronaut on the International Space Station, this supernova goes off, you're dead instantly. But because we've got the atmosphere down here protecting us, it makes that process much longer. So why did they take this 50 parsec radius, this 160 light years? I think they did a number of simulations, but along some line between 10 light years through to thousands of light years and just decided where the safe limit was. Okay, and so this was, is the limit. Yeah, yeah, that was at 160 And how far away is Spiker? Spiker is 250 light years away. So it's outside of that range, but there's a lot of things about supernovae we don't know. So if you're wrong by a factor of two, that makes Spiker dangerous. And so it's something we've got to keep an eye on for that very reason. Just, you know, if a supernova goes off nearby, even if it doesn't have that much of an impact on us, the cosmic rays, the gamma rays and stuff are going to interfere with things like our power grid and cause lots of problems for people who rely on electricity, which is most of us. You might remember in the 80s or 90s in Quebec, a big solar flare knocked out most of their power for quite a few days, which caused a lot of people to effectively freeze and have quite a bad time until their heating came back on. And so these are real problems that we have to solve. This isn't just some abstract thing that might happen. And if it does, 
we're doomed anyway. We actually have to think about what the probabilities of, of this happening because just knocking out our power grid is one thing or just triggering a mass sort of cancer cluster across the entire Earth is also something that we have to consider. And we need to protect our astronauts that are on the International Space Station. So if the probability turns out to be very high, the kill zone is very large, then we need to get them down. As it is, it's actually there aren't many stars that can cause us a problem within that radius, so we should be okay. That's true of core collapse supernova. If there are systems within that radius that can accrete and trigger a Type 1A supernova, then of course the probability is a little bit higher. And we don't know what the Type 1A supernova candidate population is in that region. And so there's still a lot of uncertainty around what... Some novas are Type 1A candidates. My nova's 1.5 kiloparsecs, so that's further, isn't it? That's well outside that region. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're yeah, safe yeah. from yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good, because like, it's not that interesting. I don't think it's going to do anything anyway. We could bring our astronauts down if you find it's really likely. But in terms of the ozone layer getting shot, there's not much you can do about that. You can't stop that, right? No. So what no. do they say? Wear lots of sun cream. Or... <laughs> well, even sun cream wouldn't really help mm. you. I mean, there is no solution to this. If this happens, it happens. It's unavoidable. It's unpredictable. There's really not a great deal we can do other than just burrow underground. But even there, cosmic rays will still get us. And so it is just one of those things that we need to know what the probability of this is. But in the event that it happens, there's nothing we can do about it. But it has implications for things like the Drake equation as well, because it tells us something about what the mean lifetime is of an intelligent civilization. Is that already factored into the Drake equation? Yes. Yeah, it's the last but term. it's yeah. not well constrained. It's yeah. not constrained at all. No. <laughs> yeah. It's just a giant question mark. <laughs> and so if you can say something about, you know, if you're at this point in a galaxy, the number of stars around you is this, therefore... This many of them are likely to go supernova, therefore the mean lifetime of a civilization at this point in a galaxy is this number. Mm. Then that helps. So, scary. So we can move on from grumpy old stars having tantrums um, <laughs> to uh, baby stars having tantrums. But let's move back a bit. Did you know that the Earth is a little bit weird? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's speed back to the way solar systems form, because this is what my own end talks all about. So at the moment we think that Solar systems form from large clouds of dust and gas called nebulas, which are pulled inwards and the core collapses into the kernel of a new star. And as the cloud shrinks, it speeds up in its rotation and the outer cloud flattens into a disk, which is called a protoplanetary disk. And this is where the planets form. So within this disk, you get your clumps of ice and dust, which uh, collide with each other and some of them accumulate. And eventually these accumulations of ice and dust get big enough that they gain their own gravitational potential strong enough to form planets. And so the theory goes in the inner solar system, it's very hot, it's close to the centre of the star, and so you will get rocky planets forming. And this is because the temperature is hot enough to sort of melt the rock a little bit more, make it a bit sticky, because rock isn't generally that sticky. Rocks bounce off each other, etc, etc. In addition to that, gas is all sort of ionised, so that's less likely to accumulate. So you get rocky planets with thin atmospheres, aka Mercury, Venus, well, Venus has quite a thick atmosphere, mm. but Earth, but not compared to the outer planets, the gas giants, for example. Now, in the outer solar system, you cross what's called the frost line, and then that is cold enough for ice to condense, and there's a lot more gas, and so you form your gas giants, and it's also too cold, really, for rock to condense, and so you get your outer planets, which are more like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, etc., etc., and so this has always sort of been the theory of how planets form, and this is how solar systems form. Now, this has been sort of called into question in some ways because we've been detecting exoplanets, we've been detecting planetary systems recently, and what we've found is that this is indeed the case. We've got lots of very close-together rocky planets, and obviously we detect more gas giants because they're easier to detect. But 
when you actually do the maths on our own solar system, what you find is that the Earth and also Mars are quite strange because they lie outside of the line where it's easy for rocky planets to form, beyond the line where it is efficient for rocks to clump together. So there are all sorts of theories about why this could be the case. You can get around this by making rocks stickier. So here's the science of sticky rocks here. Um, People have tossed out ideas, for example, well, rocks could be slightly magnetic, that could cause uh, bigger effects, or they could gain sticky organic coatings, for example. They also said that maybe rocks just get really lucky. You get a very lucky grain. I'm a which, lucky rock. <laughs> which, is, which is lucky enough. Well, it's a probability argument. You'll get one grain that is statistically unlikely that it will form a planet, but you have enough of them that eventually one will. They call those lucky mm. grains. There are problems with all sorts of things. The lucky grains have to be really lucky. It's statistically very unlikely that these will form planets anyway at the sort of distances of Earth. There are problems with the amount of carbon that actually exists on the Earth. So where carbon-based life forms, you'd think that there's lots of carbon. However, there's not actually enough to account for the sticky organic coatings that would be necessary to cause the Earth to form at this distance. People have tossed out ideas of Jupiter having a sort of a resonance which causes planets to drift, etc., etc., and things to move out and drift in all sorts of directions. But there is another idea which has been put forward by Dr. Alexander Hubbard at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And so this is a nice sort of very well-contained idea, which sort of explains solar systems like the Earth. It explains the place in the Earth. It explains the lack of carbon and sticky organic molecules on the Earth in quite a concise way. In 1936, a sun star was detected called F.U. Orionis, and it was a baby star, and it was seen to outburst. So it suddenly got 100 times brighter hence hotter, and that's lasted decades, this sort of outburst from this sort of okay. type of So stuff. that's presumably going to have a permanent effect on whatever system is forming around it. Well, it'll have an effect for as long as that outburst lasts, and lots of stars have been seen to do this recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so a large proportion of protoplanetary disks have been suspected to undergo at least one of these outbursts in their lifetime. And so this guy ran the maths, and he calculated that indeed this outburst, as you say, would cause the heating line... Right, exactly. It would just inject more energy into the system. Exactly. The protoplanetary disk would be hotter further out, um, and it would be hot enough to form a rocky planet out until about the distance of the Earth. That's interesting. Mm. Um, And so you could then argue, well, what about Mars? Mars is still rocky, but Mars is very small. And so arguments for Mars being small could be, well, if this thing gets less efficient as you get further out from this mm-hmm. cutoff. It's not like a hard cutoff, yeah. obviously. It's not one yeah. temperature and yeah. then suddenly yeah. it's freezing. It drifts off. So there will still be some rocks that can clump together, just not enough to cause a large planet to form. It makes sense as to why the rocky planets get bigger and bigger and then suddenly Mars yeah. is very small. Yeah, so to wrap this up, it also has implications for why there's less carbon than you would have expected on the Earth as well, because if the protoplanetary disk is hotter out to the distance of the Earth... Ah, okay, it then becomes more difficult for those volatiles. It burns them off, yeah, so that would decrease the amount of carbon found on the Earth. So it answers lots of nice little questions one after the other. Obviously, this hasn't been proven, Mm -hmm. but it's a theory that's been put forward. It would be interesting, like, they could presumably work out how many outbursts our sun would have had to have had Mm -hmm. to provide enough heat to form rocky planets out to orbit it has done and then you could compare that with the age of the sun and mm. find out if it's possible. Exactly. I was thinking that another way that you could test this is you could look at the uh, proportion because 
at the moment there are sort of two different types of solar system that have been discovered. One's like the Earth's and mm -hmm. one's where all the rocky planets are indeed very close to the centre mm -hmm. of the star. So what you could do is you could look at the proportion of stars that you see doing this sort of outburst and a proportion of solar systems of each type and then see if there are any links there. So okay. I think that's the sort of thing they want to look into next because obviously this is a hard theory to prove. Yeah, but yeah. it's interesting Neat. and it just ties lots of things up in a nice little bow. Mm. So... Yeah, you never know. I like it when that happens. Mm. <laughs> That's always good. And so, anyway, now for someone who's definitely not wearing a bow, here's Ian with Ask an Astronomer. Hello and welcome to Ask an Astronomer for May 2017 Extra. I'm here with Ian MacDonald. Hi, Ian. Hello. And we have three questions for you today, the first being from Francis Cairns, who asks, My understanding is that the expansion of the universe is accelerating and dark energy is used to explain this. Is it possible that the Big Bang is still happening? Well, to answer these questions, we need to first examine what dark energy and dark matter are. And the simple truth of that is that we don't know. There's a lot of clever theories, and there's a lot of good measurements, so we can certainly say a lot of what dark energy and dark matter aren't, but not an awful lot about what they are. One of the primary missions of the Hubble Space Telescope was to measure the expansion of the universe from the light curves of supernovae. And astronomers using data like this have found that the Hubble parameter, which measures how fast the universe is expanding, seemed to be increasing. We can get similar information out of the cosmic microwave background and how that relates to the large-scale structures that we see in the universe and how they grow over time. And what these combination of data mean is that the universe's expansion has been accelerating. Now this acceleration normally requires some sort of energy, so we've called it dark energy because we can't see where it's coming from. And that's just a term that we use to describe it. All we really know is that something seems to be responsible for something like 68% of all of the energy in the universe, and we can't see what it is. So we don't really know what dark energy is, how it relates to the Big Bang, or what other roles it might have in the universe. And although it now seems unlikely, it is still possible that we're missing something in the understanding of supernovae and large-scale structure, which means that we're interpreting the measurements wrongly and that dark energy doesn't exist. Discovering exactly what dark energy is could be as important as Einstein's e equals mc squared. And understanding what it is may seem esoteric at first, but if you think about the things Einstein's theories have made possible, nuclear energy, GPS, and many other things we take for granted, the amount of effort that's going into measuring and quantifying dark energy and dark matter to work out what they are is probably time very well spent. OK, thanks Ian. So our second question comes from Mark Leach and Mark asks, what shape is a millisecond pulsar? Are the conditions so extreme that general relativity must be taken into account? Well, the shape of any object in space depends on the forces acting on it. Neutron stars are some of the densest forms of material that we've observed that haven't collapsed into black holes. So the main force that we need to worry about in this case is gravity. Gravity pulls in every dense object into a spherical shape whether it's a planet or a galaxy cluster or a neutron star. But rotating objects, like millisecond pulsars, also suffer centrifugal acceleration, which tends to flatten them out into a disk. If you look at something like the Earth, it's flattened by about one part in 300. The diameter between the Earth's poles is actually about 27 miles less than across the equator. And the faster an object's spinning, the greater the amount of flattening. So if you look at Saturn, it's actually flattened by about 10%, making it the least round planet in the solar system. Now, we know of a lot of rapidly spinning stars that are even faster than this. If you look at Altair, for example, it's about 20% flatter at the equator than it is at the poles. Now, Altair rotates at something like 286 kilometers per second, and if it were rotated to about 400 kilometers per second, it would be so flattened that the rotation would be faster than the star's escape velocity. 
so material would fly off the star, and this is called the breakup velocity. Now, millisecond pulsars normally form in binary systems, where one star is a normal star and the other star is a neutron star. If the neutron star can steal material from the ordinary star, then that material falls onto the surface of the neutron star at a very fast speed, making it spin even faster. The fastest spinning pulsar we know of is PSR J1748-2446 AD. Nice telephone number, which spins at about 716 times a second. Now, that's pretty fast. We don't really know a great deal about the pulsar, about the radius or the mass, which define its shape. But we do know that it must be between about 1.4 and 2 times the mass of the Sun. It must also be at least 4 kilometers across, otherwise it would be a black hole. And based on the, what we know about neutron stars, it should be less than about 16 kilometers across. Now, if you stick these numbers into the equation that we use to calculate the flattening ratio of spherical objects, you'll find that the diameter across the poles is likely to be something between 1% and 58% less than the diameter of the equator. So if you wanted to think about it in terms of earthly objects, it's somewhere between the shape of a Malteser and an M&M, but not quite as fat as a Smarty. Now, that information is very difficult to find on Google, so I've got to thank Philip Lurcher and Mrs. McNeese of Syracuse Junior High School in Utah for that particular nugget of information. Now, for millisecond pulsars, relativity is important, because the equator could be going around at anything up to a quarter of the speed of light. The gravitational acceleration at the surface must also be at least half the speed of light. So there's various relativistic effects that can become important, like rotational frame dragging and gravitational time dilation, but these will have a much smaller effect on the shape of the pulsar itself. But curiously, relativity might actually define the maximum rate at which pulsars can spin. Pulsars are thought to have tiny irregularities in the surface. There's cold mountains, but they might only be an inch tall. But those inch-tall mountains would be enough that any pulsar spinning any faster than J1748 would actually slow down because of the emission of gravitational waves. And it's a rare example of something the size of a pebble that can slow down an entire star. The maximum speed at which pulsars can spin therefore tells us quite a lot of interesting information about how matter behaves in extreme environments, which we can't currently create on Earth. And our final question comes from Phil Rushton, who asks... Is there some kind of balance in the solar system in the distribution of the planets? The larger gaseous ones are at a medium distance from the sun, and the smaller rockier ones are closer in and further out. Could this distribution in time and space have affected the chances for life developing? Well, yes and no. We've got a pretty good idea about how planetary systems can form, and they all seem to start in roughly the same way. The gas clouds that form stars have some sort of internal motion just like clouds on Earth are in motion. So when a star collapses out of this cloud, conservation of momentum takes over. The same principle is used by ice skaters when they go into spins. As the star collapses, the spin gets faster, just like the neutron star we talked about. And the system gets flatter, with a central core, which it becomes the star, and a surrounding disk of gas and dust. It's this disk that forms the planets, as dust grains stick together to form pebbles, then boulders, then asteroids, and finally building themselves up into planets. But this protoplanetary disk starts out being very cold, and as the star starts to heat up, it warms up, and this evaporates any volatile material near the star. Thanks for that, Ian, and now on to the feedback. Okay, to start things off, before we get on to the feedback, we just want to apologise. <laughs> <laughs> the Jogcast May edition did go out about 15 days late. It went out when the extra probably should have gone out, and that was thoroughly beyond our control. Just after I'd recorded Ask an Astronomer with Ian McDonald, I tried to upload the file to our server, 
realised that our server wasn't listening, went into the room where the server is to have a look at it and found that somebody had not only pulled the network cable out of the socket, but pulled the socket out of the wall as well. We think we have a pretty good idea who that was. Yes, but they should um, remain unnamed. Yeah. But that was just one of the problems. But what we also found when we took the machine apart to see why once we plugged it back in, it still wasn't connecting is the CPU fan had died. And so we effectively had to do a copy of the entire Jodcast back catalogue to a new machine, which took quite a while. And then we had a number of dependency issues with the software that we used to actually <laughs> make the Jodcast. And so, but I mean, sorry. at least we're now not yeah. running on Python like 0. 0.0 anymore. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, rest yeah. in peace, Barnard. You've served us well. Mm. Thank you yeah. for your years of service. But it was time that you left. So. It was. It, it, Good night, it, sweet prince, I think is the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It had been given a sign that it wanted to go to sleep permanently yeah. for a while. And so now we have a shiny new server, which is in Iraq with a load of other machines that are all maintained much more closely than our old one was. So hopefully that will mitigate problems Hopefully they're safe the from the Jodcast saboteur. Yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah. if you've been following us on Twitter or Facebook, we'll have kept you informed about the outage. If neither of those in your general day-to-day social media life, then that's why we were late. So apologies for that. So we have some... We have some postcards. Post? Yeah, we have some postcards. Mm. Two postcards today, which is really exciting. You know how much we love postcards. So we've got one here from Mark Foskey in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, who says, I've been listening to your podcast for years and I thought you would use some more posts. You thought right. I love the way you get into real technical details. So few science podcasts or popular articles do. Keep up the good work. Mark Foskey. And it's a lovely postcard with a picture on the front of the Sundell Garden at Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So that's really nice. So we also have another postcard from Francis Day, who is one of our regular Facebook commenters. We actually received this postcard a while ago, but then we went to record at Jodrell Bank and I didn't take it with us. And so this is the first chance we've had to actually read it. And Francis says, just returned from the magical La Palma, had a tour of the Herschel telescope and went to a mirador at 3am and saw the Milky Way. Seeing all the telescopes at the top of the volcano was a fabulous experience. I'm so jealous of professionals who get to work there. So am I. <laughs> oh no, oh, oh, I did an observing run at uh, not La Palma, but Teda in Tenerife once and there was a lot of cockroaches. Oh, <laughs> um, so did, did we go to a different tidy? Because when I went it was beautiful. I mean, it was nice, but like I was awake all day because I can't sleep during the day even if I've been up all night and nobody else was awake and I was reading these really creepy Daphne du Maurier short stories and I was just there with the lizards and the insects in the sun all day long while everyone else was asleep and I think I kind of lost my mind a little bit. Did you look out from the side of the mountain to see a sea of clouds? Yeah, I just, it was trippy. I'm not going to lie. It was was bad for my (laughs) mental well-being. (laughs) So yeah, so you know, Francis, it's, uh, it's not for everybody, but it is for some people. I mean, I know other people who've been up there, like Charlie, you were there. I had a great time. Yeah, Yeah, it was my second year of university. I went for a week and it was amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's gorgeous. It's lovely. It's beautiful up there. I'll stick to radio astronomy because I can do that during the day. Stay on the ground and avoid the altitude (laughs) sickness. And yeah, you don't have to wake up at night. (laughs) Francis signs off with Jod on the best podcast out there from Francis Day. So thanks very much for that. And the picture is of one of the telescopes on La Palma with the Milky Way arcing overhead. Uh, I can see some familiar features in there, like the Colsac Nebula. It's a really lovely postcard, and it will look well on our wall. Yes. Thank you very much. So that's it for feedback. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jogcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash jogcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jogcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jogcast. 
And don't forget that, like Mark and Francis, you can send us posts and the address is on the website. And all that's left now is for the thank yous. So thank you very much to Dr. Elisabetta Velianti for the interview. The editors were George Bendo, Matt Malenta, Tom Scragg and Damien Trin. And the producer was Benjamin Shaw. Until next time, John! John! John!